I mean, Bitcoin, we, we agree, is Bitcoin is money. And money is just simply a resource to help you do what's important to you in your life. And it just happens to be, the, in my opinion, the best form of money. So if that's the case, then in financial planners, our job is to help you come alongside and use your money for what's important to you. Okay, So there has to be a time and place that other people in my industry come to recognize that, hey, this is, this is a superior vehicle to help people align their life and their money. This is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. What's up, peeps? Welcome in yet again to the one, the only Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast. Today, Josh and myself, Dan, are joined by certified financial planner, Jim Kreider. Jim is the founder and CEO of Intentional Living Financial Planning. He possesses a deep knowledge of financial markets, investing, tax strategies, and yes, Bitcoin. At this date and time, he is most certainly an anomaly amongst CFPs, a black sheep, if you will, in that he recommends all of his clients gain significant exposure to BTC. Josh and I found this chat extremely fruitful and very practical. We spent an hour peppering Jim with a deluge of questions. We cover topics such as why Bitcoin is the best form of money, the difference between volatility and risk, Bitcoin tax strategies, suggestions for how to handle your retirement accounts, mining stocks, GBTC, and Bitcoin ETFs, and a ton more. You can follow Jim on Twitter at JimKreiderTX. That's at J-I-M-C-R-I-D-E-R-T-X. And you can also learn about what he's up to or get in touch at intentionallivingfp.com. We'll obviously link all this stuff down in the show notes. You can follow us on Twitter at blue underscore collar BTC. If you do want to support the show, check out the support section down in the show notes. A few ways you can do that. You can subscribe on whatever app you're using. Leave us a review on Apple Podcast. Stream us some sats on Podcast 2.0 platforms. Or just tell a fellow pleb. Even tell a no-coiner, folks. As always, if you want to get in touch with us for any reason, we are bluecollarbitcoinpodcast at gmail.com. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, buckle up for this discussion with Jim Kreider. All views and language expressed by the hosts and guests in this podcast are solely their personal opinions and do not reflect their employers or organizations they are associated with. Do not treat any of the content in this podcast as investment advice or as an inducement to follow a particular strategy. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Jim Kreider, welcome on the show. How are you this morning? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. We're excited to pick your brain. Um, I would venture a guess that this is like CFP heresy. Like you're coming on a Bitcoin specific show with a couple of degenerate fireman hacks. How could this possibly help your reputation? Uh, honestly, at this point, I don't really care anymore. I, I take a lot of flack. <laughs> I, I, I get beat up a lot by other financial planners. I'm, I'm part of a, a handful of different, like really accredited, great financial planning groups. And the fact that I talk about Bitcoin and bring this stuff up. Are you the pariah, the outcast in the group then generally? Like how does it, how does that conversation generally go when it comes up? Oh yeah. People think I'm nuts or 
ignore me or just get mad. They throw out the normal FUD. Uh, a few weeks ago, I'm part of, there's a, there's a, it's actually, it's a whole, a group of really smart people, like way smarter than I am, like really good financial planners. And a few weeks ago, I posted on there, uh, there we have a, a group just to talk like, you know, financial planning topics, you know, Hey, I'm, I have questions about, you know, this estate question or this tax question or whatever. So I just put on there like general, like genuine cu- curiosity. Hey, like those people who don't talk about Bitcoin, which is the vast majority, why don't y'all talk about this? What's holding y'all back? Is it a lack of, is it, um, you just don't care about it? Is it your clients aren't, aren't asking, is it a lack of understanding on your side? Why? And man, that thing, that post blew up and I had people get mad. <laughs> it, was, it was funny. I actually ended up replying at the very end. I just let it go for a few days and just replied after all the goofy comments that I, I said, I should have, I should have titled this. Tell me you don't know about, you don't understand Bitcoin without <laughs> saying you don't understand Bitcoin. Just, it was, it was, it was scary. Like one, one guy replied, he said, Bitcoin isn't real. And I just replied back. You're not real, man. <laughs> <laughs> that is such a common thread with the older guys we work with too. Like we, there's a couple of them that we kind of use as bellwethers for when maybe we're near a top because they, whenever those guys start talking about it or getting excited about it, that's like a red light that goes off and says, maybe we should take a little bit off the top, but I don't think <laughs> oh, I'll be yeah. doing it. I don't think honestly, I'll be doing it this round. Uh, because there's just so much crazy nonsense going on in macro world right now. But yeah, those bellwethers at this point, I think Dan, uh, you spoke to one of them yesterday and uh, Mm -hmm. he's still talking a lot of shit about it right now. So yeah, I will tell you when firefighter boomers start talking about Bitcoin, uh, we don't abandon ship, but the alarm bells are ringing that maybe it's time to get near a lifeboat. Um, Josh, you said in the past, like it's uncanny. Like we got a couple of these characters that like when they start talking about, it's like, yeah, this is the peak of the cycle. It was classic. In 2017, this gentleman came up to me the morning that Bitcoin hit the front page of the wall street journal. And he goes, have you ever heard of crypto coin? And that was literally the day it hit its peak. It was like December 17th in 2017. That was the day. So it's just uncanny. Jim, I heard you on another show. I'm blanking on what it is, which is actually good because I'm going to talk some shit about it. Um, the host, uh, it was a good, it was a great conversation. You did a great job and, and, and he did mostly as well. But when you, you kind of warned him, like, I'm a little bit unconventional. And then he's like, okay, tell me more. And then you're <laughs> like, uh, I'm very bullish on Bitcoin. And his, his tone was literally like, really? Like you would have thought he just watched you punch a baby. And then you proceeded in the episode to, to enumerate, which we won't force you to do. You're welcome to do if you want. But some of your just astronomic returns in 2020 and some of the trades that you made, these are, these are just absurd gains. And it was like, oh, that's cool. Like, great for you. Glossed over onto the next topic. And I'm like, I, I understand where these folks are coming from that aren't well researched. I get the trepidations thinking it's a bubble, but like at what point, Jim, maybe we'll start here. Like at what point are people going to start paying freaking attention? Because I, I understand maybe if you haven't researched, it looks like hogwash, but we're going on 13 years of almost a 200% compound annual growth rate, parabolic network effect. Like at what point is the world you're swimming in going to start recognizing what the water looks like around them? Quick note what was edited out on that podcast was when he asked about my rate of return for 2020, I said the number and there was like probably a 10 second, just silence of him (laughs) computing what just happened. 
Uh, and then, yeah, he took that and he, he initially assumed that was my asset growth for my firm and had to you know, remind him that that was my personal portfolio, not my whole firm. Um, <laughs> so it's pretty funny. And then he funny. gave a disclaimer. Sorry to keep going on this. At the beginning of the episode, if I remember, he's like, for those listening, some of the returns mentioned in this episode are, I think he may have even used the word unrealistic. It's like, oh. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, sorry, the question, when will this... Uh, can you, re- can, you, can you restate the question? Yeah. I, I, when, when do you think, so you're in an industry that's in a lot of ways, it's convenient not to understand what's going mm-hmm. on here, or at least you're at the periphery of such an industry. Okay. At what point is that no longer going to be a viable perspective to have? Like, when are we going to get to a size where obstinance is just not in play anymore? Man, I, I, it's tough because I, I think we're already there. Um, the tough part is like, to me, this is glaringly obvious. People think that either you're absurd or a gambler or whatever, but to those people who have drank the Kool-Aid and understand what Bitcoin is, it just seems like the most obvious yeah. basic thing you can do. It's completely like, I, rational. Yeah. 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 So that that's I'm in it so much it's hard. Like it's funny, I go between these two camps where I like I love traditional financial planning. Like I love this stuff. I spend most of my nights falling asleep you know, reading about tax law and estate planning and all that fun stuff. And, you know, all that, uh, that, that nerdy financial planning stuff. So there's that half of me. And then there's the other half that's on like Bitcoin Twitter um, that, <laughs> you know, hates financial planners. And these, these groups that I'm part of hate each other. They think they're both morons. Yeah. And I'm actually one of the few that's like, hey, can I, can I do both of these? And frankly, like, so, I mean, Bitcoin, we, we agree is Bitcoin is money and money is just simply a resource to help you do what's important to you in your life. And it just happens to be the, in my opinion, the best form of money. Okay. So if that's the case, then in financial planners, our job is to help you come alongside and use your money for what's important to you. Okay. So there has to be a time and place that other people in my industry come to recognize that, Hey, this is, this is a superior vehicle to help people align their life and their money. Now, when will that happen? I think it's going to have to take a, it needs to come through education. So I'm like a few weeks ago, I had a conversation with a handful of planners that I, I meet with weekly and they, they hear me talk about Bitcoin all the time. They think I'm nuts. And they start asking, like actually genuinely curious rather than, you know, getting after me like, Hey Jim, like, can you actually just tell us about this? I, I, I hosted an event for my clients and they just want to hear about the, how the event went. So I, led, I allowed that to be an introduction or an invitation to try to orange pill them. So we actually just took an hour. It was me and a handful of other advisors. And I actually went through and said, well, what, before I tell you about Bitcoin, you tell me what you think you know. And we just got it all out there. Like, all right, just any, any FUD you have, let's just hear it. Get on the table. Like before, we try to, before I try to go here with this, let's just let's see where you're starting. And so we got it out there. I said, okay, well... One, we're, we're going we're gonna to address all those points, but let's also go through and talk about what this actually is. So we just took an hour and all of the p- planners on that meeting said, wow, like this one hour has been way more informative than all the years that I've thought I've been learning about this stuff. And it's ironic. Most of the, the, the arguments they're bringing up have been disproved. You know, they're, they're the same things from 2017. So they're, they're going off news from the last time we were at the market high, like, oh, like this is going to use all the energy in the world. It's like, oh no, this, this is years behind. It just hasn't come to your attention yet. So it's, it's going to take education. Yeah. We, 
I think Dan and I absolutely agree with that. And that's what we're trying to do with this as well. So what I wanted to ask you, Jim, when you have someone walk in your office and they want you to help plan their finances for them, just a regular schmo, blue collar guy, and they're asking about how you think you should allocate their wealth, what is your, and let's just say they have no idea what Bitcoin is and you're going to tell them, uh, I don't know what your allocation would be for that type of person. I'm not even going to ask that question yet. What, what is your elevator pitch to those people? What is your, how do you explain this in a quick, uh, elegant way in order for them to kind of come to grips with what this is and why they should own a little bit of it? How do I explain this? It's, it is tough. I think we all recognize that it's tough to explain in 10 seconds. Yes. You know, there's these cliches we see on Twitter. It's like, oh, Bitcoin's freedom. Bitcoin's hope. You can't tell that to someone on the street. They're like, oh, I get it now. Like, oh, that doesn't mean anything. Sounds like a cult when you say that stuff. Exactly. Like, oh, yeah, you lunatic with your laser eyes. Wait, wait, hold on. As an interjection, did you guys see, and this is, I'm entering thin ice here, but did you see the the Swan Bitcoin MicroStrategy Tomer Strolite 15-minute video from this last week? I did not. Okay. Um, I'm going to be gentle. Uh, I agree with the sentiments behind the video, but I literally thought I was watching a video by like the seventh day and the Adventists. <laughs> Dan, we got to go. We got to start going door to door. We, we got to do it. I was like, folks, <laughs> I see the utopia that you envision, but in terms of capturing new entrants, you sound insane and there's nothing behind it substantiating this glamorous future. I agree. You can't start with just these unbelievable high-level horizon painting blissful narratives. You have to come back to the beginning and, ex and work from first principles. You have to make it a, a, an actual relatable thing. You can't be just pie in the sky. It's, it's good feelings and rainbows. Um, now, there, also, there is a place of relating it to them specifically. You can't just say like, oh, Bitcoin's hope for the world. That doesn't mean anything to people. There is a place of using the technical principles, but then also coming and saying, hey, this... What's important to you? Okay, perfect. This is a way of helping accomplish those things. Um, so there, there's that balance there. Um, I did watch that video last night. I watched it. I got about eight minutes through and was just like, ah, I like Swan, but this is just tough. Um, yeah, it's just, tough. It, was, it was just odd. I mean, anyways, I don't, I don't mean to crap on him. I, I like Swan. But okay, the question was, what do, how do I talk to people about this? Typically, if I say, hey, do you have, jokingly, do you have, you know, I'll say, do you have a few minutes to, to talk about the history of money? I love that. And angle. they laugh that I, we have to get it out there. Yeah. So we just talk like, all right, what, um, I'll go through and just, hey, let's unpack what is money from the beginning of time? How's this work? What makes money important? And then what is, and then from there we transition to, so what is Bitcoin and what makes it valuable? And then I also then go into moving forward. So what's cause, so I go through the history of money. What's caused this stuff? What are the attributes of Bitcoin? And then I parlay that into where we're at currently and the things that people see. Like, hey, equities right now, they're at a place, you know, trading at multiples that they were at entering the dot-com, you know, boom and bust. Um, house prices are, are multiples past what they cost in, the, in 2007 lean up to, or leading up 2007 housing crisis. Bonds aren't paying anything. Cash is being eroded by inflation. And then, so that's how I position why we view it moving forward as a good store of value. And then that also, I believe in my, in, in my opinion, uh, creates a great argument for the expected value growth of it. One of the methods that I've used and I think has been incredibly successful. I, I've, uh, Dan, I know Dan's read the book Sapiens. That's kind of the book that set me off on this journey to understand why imaginary money like Bitcoin can actually be relevant for the world. And 
really what that book does is it boils down and it kind of brings this understanding to the forefront that literally everything in this world is imaginary. Corporations are just imaginary entities that we produce uh, to, you know, cohesively go after a goal that we put for ourselves. Nations are an imaginary construct that we all agree on. Money is an imaginary construct that we all agree on. And so once you understand fundamentally that all of these things are imaginary, it's simply what is the best imaginary method to account for money? Is it a way, yeah. is, it, is it a money that some bureaucrats can manipulate and change at their whim? Or is it a money that literally cannot be manipulated or changed by anybody? And when you f- kind of frame it that way, I've found that many people, if they agree with the, the supposition that everything is imaginary, uh, really, when it comes down to it, kind of like, it's like Elon Musk says, we're in a simulation. We kind of are. It's all simulation. It's all imaginary. So choose the best imaginary money. And you can't hold this imaginary money, but a paper dollar is literally just a printed piece of paper. Like it's completely insane that older people will say, well, you can't hold Bitcoin. Well, you can hold a piece of paper. And that somehow substantiates its value. Like that's insane when you really boil it down. Yeah, I, I love when I you know talked to someone about a few weeks ago, I had lunch with a guy. He literally said, Jim, I'm, I, I, wanna, I think I want to buy some Bitcoin. I have FOMO. And uh, he used the, those words. So it was like, wow, this is, we're actually entering the FOMO stage, according to this guy. Uh, <laughs> but we talked for, for a couple of hours and we went through the basics again, like what's money and what's this important, all that stuff. And then we started getting actually pretty technical on the conversation. And after all of that, he said, I don't know, Jim, this seems really complex. It's hard for me to buy something that I don't understand. I said, oh, that's reasonable to not buy something you understand. Um, he said, yeah, I know. It's just, I don't get it. So, okay, well, what about like, how does US dollar work? He's like, oh, it's just, that's just way easier. I said, oh, so you understand how the US dollar works. Please tell me where does where yeah. the US dollar come from and how does it get its value and like all of these things. And he was like, now, now that I think about it, I really don't know. And that's the, that's the interesting thing. When something new comes up, we question what it is. But when you're around something for a long time, we, we pretend we know it. I think we're, uh, we have a bias towards thinking we understand something just because it's familiar, like a toilet. Yeah. Like people are like, oh yeah, of course, the toilet. Like, oh, can you tell me how a toilet works? Yeah, sure. You just flush it. No, how? What? What are the mechanics of it? I have, I have no clue. There's something involving pipes and water, um, and it goes underneath my house or something. Um, but yeah, that's when you when you push back. Like, oh, you you this seems too complex. Well, and how does the legacy system work? Oh, I don't know either. Okay. Well, in in if we take that point of view, actually, I think Bitcoin is a lot simpler to understand. It's just a piece of code, and here's the rules versus. Here's all the other factors that can come in here and, and manipulate and change things. Bitcoin is incredibly simple on one end of the spectrum, yet also astonishingly complex. And it really makes me think back to other technologies. I mean, think about how complex it would have been in, say, the late 80s to you know, utilize SMTP to send an email on top of TCP IP. Like, the you go like the, the origins of the internet or television or electricity like there is a, a lot of of cloud in front of what is momentously paradigm shifting technology and i think for a lot of people we're at that point and i think there is a lot of wisdom in what you just articulated jim and that is taking people back to some simplistic first principles that they can build off of instead of starting with some of the more complicated tech i think is is very wise i also wanted to say just to, by way of introduction, we joke about you kind of being ostracized by the financial community and sort of being caught between this rock and a hard place between 
hardcore Bitcoiners and, and traditional finance. But I do think that the truth is that, you know, most people don't have 100% of their net worth in cold stored non-KYC coin joined Bitcoin. Like I know on Twitter, it can feel that way when you're... Most people that just heard that have no idea what right, you just said. Exactly. So so we're, we're, we are, especially as we're on an exponential adoption curve, we're at this phase where there is going to absolutely have to be this meld of these two worlds. And even a lot of people with high levels of conviction are going to continue to meld the two worlds. I am uh, a perfect example of this. I have been a, so far in my adult life, a pretty traditionally aggressive investor. Dollar cost average into low cost, no load mutual funds over 30 years. That's how you build wealth. I've kind of perched in this comfortable position with the foot on the gas, right? Doing my research. Bitcoin is really the first thing that's pushed me out of this nest and caused me to, to fly, as Josh would say, and, <laughs> and investigate another asset. But I mean, I still hold a ton of equity in, in retirement accounts relative to my net worth. I mean, obviously, Bitcoin, quote unquote, hedge position has, has grown through the years. But um, I am very interested in what you're up to and what your vision is, because I think there is going to be growing use case for it as we're onboarding orders of magnitude user involvement. I'm I'm obviously sure you view it the same way. Yeah. Is, where, where do you want to go with that as far as uh, asset allocation? or? I think this is a simple way to go there. Who's coming to you right now? What, what kind of clients are reaching out to you and what kind of folks are you working with? So my, my firm, we work specifically with, with young families who desire early financial independence. So the families we work with are generally going to be late 20s to maybe early 40s. I'd say the average is like probably 33, 34 and uh, yeah, I mean, these are anywhere from very blue collar uh, people to very high income, high net worth families. It's less about uh, monetary stance, but more of the principles and the type of lifestyle they want. So that's that's what we work with. They, I mean, I have I have clients who know far more about Bitcoin than I do, um, who own Bitcoin companies, those sorts of things, and then I have families that have no clue what Bitcoin is until we we talk and introduce them to this and uh, give them a healthy understanding so we can make sure we're integrating in portfolios. Where do you see your future trajectory? Do you think you're going to be pulling more the uninformed and moving them towards Bitcoin? Or do you think as you, as you kind of move into this persona, let's say, or you expose yourself more and, and people become more aware of what your views on Bitcoin, that you'll start to be more of a magnet for Bitcoiners? Probably the former. Yeah, the reason I say that, I think a lot of Bitcoiners are turned off to financial planners and won't give the time of day to hear the value proposition. The irony here is there's actually there's there's a handful of great financial planners outside of me um, who are really into Bitcoin and super smart people who love Bitcoin. Um, and I just see so much out there on Twitter, like you know, whatever. Like I don't need a financial advisor. Satoshi's my financial advisor. It's like that sounds great. But do you understand the tax implications and strategies here? Do you understand the, I mean, for you guys, for instance, like, all right, y'all are going to have a pension one day, I would assume. So how do Maybe. you properly integrate Bitcoin into your pension um, to make sure that you're offsetting that fixed income that doesn't really have much of an inflationary hedge yeah. um, with your personal situation? And y'all probably have like a 457 through your employer. So you should put money to a 457 if you're going to retire before 55, all of these things. Um, and that's, that's what I do. You know, people are like, oh, this guy only talks about investments. Um, and I'm going to buy Bitcoin, so I'm covered. So that's that's a tough demographic to reach. Now, is ironic? I have had the conversation with a lot of Bitcoiners, like off the record, you know, people that you see on Twitter a lot 
who have a lot of like, you know, Bitcoin maxi statements like, oh, you know, just this is stuff you see. And then we have a conversation, um, just just two of us. And um, yeah, typically they're a lot more, you know, forgiving and kind and human and uh, have questions. And yeah, aren't just, you know, what you mentioned a moment ago, like 100 percent cold storage, you know, all that stuff. Yeah, I, I'm more than happy to work with Bitcoin people, um, but I, I, I guess even just by the number, like just how numbers work, there's a lot more non-Bitcoiners than our Bitcoiners. I would love to eventually like scale my practice where um, I have an advisor, if it's me or another advisor that works specifically with people who are, um, you know, Bitcoin plebs and helping them with financial planning. That would be fun, but I just don't see that happening at, at the at the current state. You mentioned. Um our pension, which is a question we were going to get to. But since you mentioned it, I thought maybe we'd hop over there. So the way our pension is structured is pretty typical. It's a 65% equity, mostly S&P 500. And then we're mandated to have 35% fixed income, which is very low returning, you know, dog shit for better term um, at this point. We actually had an episode, like we mentioned, about talking about pensions. And I backtested a couple of different portfolio options for this a 1% addition of Bitcoin. And I had to use GBTC in order to backtest it because the software didn't allow for Bitcoin. But a 1% addition over the last five years would have added 400 basis points to the return of that portfolio. And a 5% would have more than doubled the return from like, I think, 12.5% to like 26 or 7%. What would be your advice to say if you had to come to our pension and say, here's a rational amount of Bitcoin to sit on uh, to try to mitigate that 35% fixed income? That's a Tough question. I think I would position opportunity cost, recognizing the risk. So um, obviously, Bitcoin has a massively asymmetric play involved. And you have to acknowledge with people that asymmetric does not mean guaranteed. Right. Okay. So that's where a lot of people are like, oh, well, you know, it's super risky. Acknowledge that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's highly volatile. I understand. The reason we buy this is because it is asymmetric and you know there's more stuff besides that, but that's why I position asymmetric opportunity. And if it is asymmetric, recognizing again that asymmetric does not mean guaranteed, then it really only makes sense to at least have a small allocation in the portfolio. And then yeah, run through those those backtested numbers and also again present the risks involved inside of the current portfolio. Everything has a risk. There's trade-offs inside of everything, you know, like sitting in cash. I, I've had tens of thousands of conversations with families throughout the years. And a lot of times people say, Oh, I don't want to invest in X because there's too much risk. I'm going to keep it in cash, not understanding that cash is risky too. And you know, like the the the, the risk with cash is inflation and all those other things. So positioning, hey, look. If we have a small allocation of this, um, again, we're not we're looking to hedge other types of risk, and this is how we're going to do that. And here's the the risk that we face inside of our current portfolio, um, and right. then have just sort of challenge them to to look outside of the the you know sixty five thirty five. Um, historically, that's that's done all right, but again, if you started doing that in the early eighties, yeah. that bond that bond position's only gone up in value. Um, you have to you have to press there and say, well. Now what? How is that going to continue sustaining its its growth unless interest rates go negative? Right. Um, so, yeah, that's yeah. Saifedean gets into that with his new book, The Fiat Standard. I listened to him with Natalie Brunel, and he talks about how with fiat, you need to bust your ass to make the money. Number one, and then once you've made the money, now you have to be a you have to be an investor in order to keep your money because it's getting inflated away officially at five percent, unofficially probably more like ten percent at this point. So 
you're taking on another full-time job just to maintain the wealth that you've created. You're, you know, it's, it's incredibly onerous on especially people that don't have a lot to invest with. So it's, it's so, it's so difficult for people that don't have a lot of resources to get ahead at this point. Yeah. Think about how different things would be if you could just save your money and know that that spending power, that value is going to be there in the next couple of years. Like for instance, if you said, Hey Jim, we need to buy a new, my, my, you know, my wife and I are going to need a new minivan in two years. Um, if we knew that the minivan is going to cost what it does today in two years, it'd be pretty simple. Perfect. You need, you're going to need $20,000 for a van in two years. So we're going to save whatever, $800 a month. There we go. But then you throw in the volatility and everything with inflation. So then you're like, all right, well, if in two years you're going to need a minivan, it costs 20 grand today. What's the future uh, need of this? And if you only can save $20,000 and the, the, you know, the, the minivan is going to be 24 down the line. Um, now we have to figure out, well, what's a, what's a portfolio that can expect to grow, you know, get that other $4,000 difference. How do you allocate it? And what are the trade-offs? Because, you know, if, if we put too much of this in, in risky assets, maybe instead of having 20 that you had initially contributed, now it's only worth 19. And now you definitely can't, can't get the van. You know, that's, that's a tough thing rather than saying, Hey, I'm going to need $20,000 in two years. Perfect. Just save $20,000 and you'll have it in two years. Um, yeah, that would just yeah, the, the, the fiat versus Bitcoin, just that. Obviously, that, that's not going to be achieved for a very long time, but that would make things so much simpler. Yeah, I, I was just reading. Um, I'm working back through Parker Lewis's Gradually Then Suddenly series, which is just phenomenal. For somebody that's wanting a, a fairly comprehensive introduction to the implications of Bitcoin, I can't recommend that enough. Second installment of that, I, I think the title is Bitcoin is All for One. And he basically explores the idea that just, just how incredibly financialized our economy is because when there's this much centralized monetary intervention, it fosters this desperation for yield kind of in every corner of the economy. And we become incredibly financialized, which makes things very complicated for the average person. And and dare we say the middle class, like for our peers to really be on top of this thing and to be cultivating and growing wealth appropriately, it takes either knowing the right person or working with the right person or a tremendous amount of research I think one of my hopes and visions for the future is that Bitcoin is going to dramatically simplify that conundrum and that it's going to be a place where if you're confused and you want to stay safe in the nest, you can just sock money in Bitcoin and it will preserve your buying power. Um, On that vein, though, because I want to go when we kind of reach these conclusions, you've hinted that you think Bitcoin is an incredible hedge against inflation and that it's something that's going to preserve value. Why do you say that? Like, I'm a client in your office that doesn't know anything about Bitcoin. Like, like how, how is it going to accomplish that? What is it about this protocol that's going to allow it to preserve value? There again, we, we start off, this is assuming we've already gone through, like, what is money? What's the history of it? What's what create, makes something a good store of value in, in form of money? So we, and we have to start with that. If you're going to lay out what, what is Bitcoin and why it's important. Once they capture that, then the Bitcoin conversation is a lot easier. So then, yeah, we go into the attributes of Bitcoin. We do that pretty, pretty basic. You know, hey, this is, it's similar going back to the, the history of money. Then we reference what's made his money good or bad historically. So then we'll reference those points. Hey, this is why, you know, this is how, uh, remember we talked about earlier gold and it has this stock to flow and it's tough to mine and all that stuff. Well, Bitcoin's like that. So I, you know, I relate it to these things people are familiar with and these concepts they can grasp. 
And once we've gone that and made these these connections between things that, oh, you know, like you have dollars and cents are easy to spend. That's why we went off, you know, we we created fiat currencies, all that stuff. So yeah, what make it relatable. And then after we've captured that stuff, then say, all right, well, what's the future vision here? Why is this? Why do I think it's a good store of value? And that's where we position the looking forward um, sort of thing. So I position actually where we're at today because people are aware, like you mentioned a minute ago, like it would, how much simpler it'd be if, if we didn't have to worry about inflation and we just put money in into Bitcoin and called day um, to, to, to cover ourselves. So then I, I, I bring that up like, hey, I'm sure you're, you've recognized now that, um, you know, stocks, again, stocks are cost a lot. They're, they're trading at really high premiums right now. And bonds, I mean, interest rates are really low. So you put money in a bond, you're pretty, much, you're, you're pretty much guaranteed just to get your money back in the future, if not lose a little bit. And we're not even talking about inflation. And then we talk about cash and how it's you know being eroded by inflation and just the risk there that's that's a silent killer. And then also houses, like hey, like houses today, like my my house in the last twelve months has appreciated by probably about forty percent, um, which is horrible. Like for me, yeah, my net worth has gone up or whatever. Like my home value has gone up by forty percent. Trust me, my house is not forty percent better. It's probably forty percent worse because my three kids just yeah. tear it up, and that that's frustrating. That's just something that's always kind of been a quandary to me. And this is even pre understanding all this stuff is like, okay, house is built. It, it obviously breaks down over time. Things break it. The structure becomes unsound after a hundred years, but everybody expects that this depreciating and what's in a rational world, a depreciating asset should increase in value. It's like any other thing you use. It's, it's something that you consume and eventually it's worthless because it's just not going to stand forever. And the yeah. fact that everyone expects that these things should just gain value is, is crazy. And it's, again, I think it's because we live in this fiat idea, this fiat world where everyone doesn't realize that the real mechanism working here is that this is a scarce asset and the money is anything but scarce. Yeah. There, and there's a reason that the IRS allows you to take depreciation against uh, like rent houses and stuff. They understand that, hey, these things get beat up. So therefore we have depreciation to consider whenever you have these rent, these investment properties. Right. Um, but yeah, so then we go to that, like, hey, houses cost a ton. Why, why is this happening? Then we talk about actually, you know, hey, typically pensions and these big uh, uh, institutions, what have they invested in? We talk about, you know, they're buying stocks, they're buying, and they, you know, typically go into a stock and bond portfolio. And then a lot of them, you know, 2000, I think it's like 2010, 2000, or 2011, somewhere in there, Warren Buffett came out and said, hey, if I didn't have billions of dollars or whatever to manage, if I was a smaller uh, investor, I would actually go out and just buy a whole bunch of single family houses. Well, a lot of people listen to that. So you've seen this run in on, uh, on single family houses. So I talked about that. Hey, I'm sure you've noticed if you bought a house last year, you're looking right now because a lot of my clients, um, you know, either buying their first house or buying investment properties now. So we talk about, I'm sure you've recognized the houses cost a ton, probably more than we think they should. Why is that? Well, when you're trying to buy a house, you're not just competing against me and my wife and and other families like you. You're competing against BlackRock and these institutions and and hedge funds and and private equity. Um, So we, we position that like, all right, so we go back through like, Here's forms of here's forms of uh, investments and uh, ways of preserving value over time, and how does Bitcoin come into this? So then we position, hey, if like single family houses are basically a they're basically a bond. You get a coupon on a monthly basis as you collect rent, and then one day if you want to sell your house, then you get your you redeem your bond and you get that principal back. Like that's it. It's, it's basically a, a bond. 
So what's going to happen here? Well, yeah, I, I like I like real estate. I've spent too much time reading and studying and like investing in real estate over the years. And uh, you know, that's it has been historically a good store value. It basically just keeps up with inflation on a normal time. Like that's really what it is. But uh, it's also expensive. You know, you've got to worry about the maintenance and transaction fees are really high and all these things. So I think as as institutions come to recognize what Bitcoin is as a, as a superior store of value, you're going to start seeing this this movement from uh, these other asset classes. Um, you know, moving from I think real estate is going to be an early mover. Like, hey, instead of storing our value in this thing that actually you know depreciates over time and is expensive to keep up, um, then we're going to start moving to Bitcoin, and then people are going to realize that hey, same thing with bonds, and then eventually equities. And that's why you can see this massive run up in value. It's not because everything else is going to stay equal and Bitcoin will only will just go up. No, you're going to see a seesaw happen over time. Um, so that that's where we get to, well, how is this thing going to continue to grow and why should it grow? You have to position, well, where are we now? What are the inherent risks of where we're at now? So then you everything is an even playing field. Bitcoin is risky, but everything else is risky too. So where do you actually feel comfortable with taking risk? Again, there's risk in everything. A lot of people, right. you know, when we think about like risk, there's people out there who are shut-ins. Like they won't leave their house. There's a lot of risk in that. Like, oh, I don't want to I don't want to go out because I could get germs and die or get in a car crash. So I'm going to stay in my house forever. That's risky. You're probably going to be vitamin D deficient and become obese and yeah. also just have a really bad life. That's a great point. That's an opportunity cost that I think you just highlighted right there with this whole COVID thing going on that people just don't recognize. Like their risk assessment ability is so twisted at this point. Like walking down a flight of stairs, getting stung by a bee, probably just as likely to kill you as COVID or likelier, or getting in your car, especially at this point. But that's a totally different tangent here. This is a f- fascinating one for firemen. Um, obviously, there's a wide spectrum on the on thoughts on COVID and vaccine and everything in the fire service. But one thing that very few paramedics diverge from is that people have a totally... Uh, a massive misperception of, of what the risks are of being a homo sapien. I mean, responding to 911 every day, like there's a, there's a lot of shit out there that's going to get you folks, just so you're aware. There's a lot of medical issues and traumatic concerns. Right right now it's crazy because it's just people killing themselves. Honestly, it's, it's, Mm. it's people that are completely depressed at this point from all of this craziness. And I think people are a bigger risk themselves than COVID is. That's a yeah. great analogy, though, to the financial sector. Like people are disillusioned to the risks that surround them. I mean, the like the pension thing. I mean, we feasted on this on our pension episode, but like, you know, we we won't go super far down this. But like this 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 forty year trade of de- declining interest rates, like it's over. That the bond bull market is over. There's there's mathematically nowhere else to go. You're not going to stay solvent in these large institutional funds with a 35, 40% allocation to, to bonds. And so I think one of the scariest things as a Bitcoiner is like, you know, somebody's going to left, be left holding the bags in the credit market. You know, yeah. you listen to, to yeah. Foss or Pish or you, you think through this yourself, you've read some Dalio, like there will be a bag holder. And I think our biggest fear and probabilistically, I think it's an, a, a very real fear is that government pensions like ours are going to be the ones with... Yeah. with the bag in their hand. I want to mm. change gears here slightly. We're talking about risk, especially. So we touched on this just before we started talking. I want to talk a little bit about Bitcoin mining stocks. It, right quick. Yeah. Can, can I make one point? Okay. Um, this is also really important as I, as I talk about Bitcoin and risk. Um, I, I pride myself in the fact that during the, uh, all the China stuff this summer, um, you know, I, I actually, all, my clients 
generally going to have 10 to 20% of their total investable assets allocated to Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining. <laughs> I love it. So they're, they're pretty heavy in this. And Tre- I pride treason. myself that that's CFP yeah, th- treason. <laughs> <laughs> they, uh, I, when Bitcoin went from, you know, the sixties down to 29,000 the summer, I didn't have a single client call, text, email, anything. Because when we initially established this position, I made sure they understood the purpose and intent behind it and uh, the long-term vision and the risks associated. And uh, that's really important. Like, how do you how do you ensure that you are in something that you're going to hold? Well, one, it, it takes education, but two, it also takes conviction and understanding and also just making sure it fits in the plan. So that that's really important to do. And again, it's also helping people understand the difference between risks and volatility. A lot of people think that Bitcoin is risky because it's volatile. Well, uh, volatility is just the movement of a price. Um, and it, that's important to, to recognize. Like the price can move, but the value doesn't change. So it's the movement of price. That's, that, is, that is volatility. Most people think that's risk. Risk is the inability to reach a goal. Okay. So if you're in a, uh, again, you can be sitting in cash and your, your, your price doesn't move at all. But your ability to buy that house, like, I don't know, I have, I have a lot of friends that are trying to buy their first house and hey, I'm sorry, but your house became 40% more difficult to buy now and you can't afford it. Mm-hmm. Like that's really risky. Mm-hmm. Is, it, is your dollars, are, the, are your dollars volatile? No. Is it risky? Yes. So you have to decouple these things to understand really what are you talking about? That's a great way to, to look at a risk analysis, just viewpoint on all of this. Yeah. Really appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to just. <laughs> dive into these Bitcoin mining stocks. So uh, I think the most enlightened person that I've listened to or seen comment on this is Mike Alfred. And he was on Preston's show talking about this. Some of the numbers and some of the um, rationale for this is quite compelling. So he talked about HUT8 and Mara. They have about, and this was a couple months ago, so these numbers have changed slightly, but I'm just going to go with what he said to flesh this out for everybody. They were holding approximately $5 billion in their balance sheets in Bitcoin. Both of these companies have publicly stated that they will not sell Bitcoin. They will simply finance their operations. So these guys are commercial hodlers at this point. And using his math, he says they should be able to produce about 10,000 Bitcoins in a year uh, together. They have about 11,000 in custody and they're not selling. Over the next two and a half years, they should be able to produce about 28,000 Bitcoins for a total of 39,000 Bitcoins hodled between just these two companies. They're not selling it, obviously, like we said. So over the next six years, 60,000 Bitcoins potentially in custody between these two companies. And again, now this is a stretch. Now, he was talking as if Bitcoin hits a million dollars in six years, which, I mean, we could argue back and forth if that's possible or not. But let's just say 10 years, 10 years from now, right? Hits a million dollars. With normalized PE ratios today, those companies can expect a return between 20 and 60x over the next decade. And he think, and obviously, a million dollars is about 20x for Bitcoin. So this is like, obviously, another risk layer on top of Bitcoin, because not only does Bitcoin have to function and be around, but these companies have to huddle, like they said, they're going to not fall apart because of some execution risk as far as their executives are concerned or they're running their companies. But I mean, we're talking about multiplying the returns of Bitcoin times three potentially for these companies. And uh, I, I can see Jim, Jim's face is like, yeah, Josh, I have this show pony saddled in my garage right now. <laughs> so yeah, after kind of uh, going through his understanding and his concepts there. What are your thoughts on this? I, so I, I own a lot of those companies you mentioned personally, 
and then my clients. Um, so a lot of the families I work with and similar to, to my wife and I, my wife, her name's Kendra. So Kendra and I, we both at previous employers had fantastic company matches. So we had a lot of money in 401ks and we left those employers. We moved over to IRAs and Roth IRAs and so on. And instead of going the self-custody or the direct, self-directed IRA route, we went ahead and uh, just bought some of these mining companies. So that's that's what we own. So we own a like the, the vast majority of those are it's going to be an, is in marathon at the moment. Um, and then our my clients, they own um, there's inside of this discretionary portfolio. But yeah, if we're putting money inside of a Roth IRA or something like that, we're we're buying uh, right now. It's in three companies. It's Marathon, Riot, and Hut. Um, that that's what we we're buying for them inside of this discretionary portfolio, and that can change certainly. That's where we're at right now. Um, I certainly like it. Yes, there's risks. Again, Bitcoin itself, um, again, asymmetric is not being guaranteed by any means. It's it's a I would say, yeah yeah. There, there's risk here. Um, there's things that could happen. Then you do you throw it in also uh, throw a company on top of that. Then you are adding an additional layer of risks. Um, with yeah, company management, and if they, you know, depending if they make desi- make changes, um, holding Bitcoin on their balance sheet, their ability to continue mining, if they're going to issue more shares, they can buy more rigs, like all of these things. So you have to consider that. Um, but yeah, I, I, I personally, um, I like these positions. Again, we own them personally and for for clients. Um, you know, there is people ask about, you know, should I buy this or Bitcoin? Uh, preferably like my personal ideal, if I could, if I could restructure, not have any tax consequences for me personally to get to my ideal portfolio, I would own Bitcoin directly self custodied, just lock it away in cold storage. That's in, if we, for tax purposes, that's that taxable money, um, at the moment, just like in a taxable account. So I would have that. And then additionally, I would have everything else. So these mining companies, I would have that inside of a Roth IRA. That way I have this, if we're seeing, Again, if we assume at least Bitcoin uh, returns, if not even more, then yeah, I would ideally have that in tax-free growth, and then again, Bitcoin uh, directly inside of taxable. Um, I would, I would like that. That that's that's ideal. So, um, how about uh, GBTC or uh, this new Bitcoin ETF? What are your thoughts on those? Um, so I used to I used to own GBTC. Um, I don't own it for clients. I um, I own a little bit myself just for. Uh, cap gains purposes right now. My parents, like I helped them set up and bought some a while back. So they're sitting in it. I have some friends that own it. Um, obviously it's hurting right now, just trading, you know, uh, below where, if we, yeah. so it's, it's not, it's not at parity. If we just look at the, like, you know, what it, what it could be at. And do you see that as a benefit though, for buying it right now, because you're actually getting a discounted amount. Yeah. Yeah. Possibly. So my, my, my parents and a lot of friends who own it, like they're just hanging on because if we see this thing go to price parity, then we're you should see this uh, immediately jump by. Well, I don't even know what it's trading at. The deficit's at right now, like it's 15. 15. It's 15 below NAV right now today. Yeah. So if we see a re- return to parity, then like excluding Bitcoin's price, you'll see this 15% jump, assuming it moves to a spot ETF. Um, the ETF that was introduced a few weeks back, I, I do not, I have not bought that. I haven't bought it for clients. Um, I think it's an awesome step in, in the right direction as far as just, um, making Bitcoin more accessible and more wall street and main street, getting the conversation out there. Uh, but I, I'm not a, I'm not a huge fan of the product itself. Maybe even similar to micro. I don't own micro strategy. My clients don't own micro strategy. So I mean, you have to weigh the risk and all these things, and again, consider the opportunity costs. So that's where we arrived where we're at now. 
Yeah, th- this conversation is really applicable to me because Jim, I'm in a very similar situation to you in that uh, my wife and I have both had decent jobs for a decade, mm-hmm. and um, for a, a lot of those years, a huge amount of our wealth was just going into tax advantage retirement accounts, Roth IRAs, 457, 401k match. And I'm, I'm keenly aware of tax consequences. I mean, I've had brokerage accounts on the side. I've paid cap gains tax, which I think there are a lot of like adorable new Bitcoiners in their parents' basement who've never actually like moved money around and seen how much Uncle Sam takes. So um, I'm, I'm obviously one, one hundredth of the expert you are with tax harvesting, but I'm, I'm, I have a lot of money locked up in tax advantage retirement and there's obviously concerns there. And I know a lot of Bitcoiners are like, Oh, cash everything out and whatever, but there, there are massive risks and consequences associated with that. So this whole consideration of like what kind of hedge or Bitcoin position you're going to take in retirement is, is super applicable for me. And I know also to some extent for Josh. Yep. Absolutely. Josh and I agree that we think, GBTC is a really big opportunity right now. Joe Carlosare was the one that really got me on to, to thinking about this. It seems incredibly likely that there's going to be a spot ETF, and it is hard to fathom a future in which Grayscale is not granted one of those spot ETFs. So to me, it's trading at 15% below NAV. I think this is a really good opportunity for exposure to people because I think eventually it will obviously less that 2% fee, mostly trace the underlying. What brings me some concern, so I understand and I see how these mining stocks run. Like they, they run hot in front of it and then they kind of, they can cut the other direction. I think what's tough for me and then I want your opinion on this is I don't want to pick up pennies in front of a steamroller. Like I think Bitcoin itself is at the point in my head of of virtually guaranteed to take a massive chunk out of the global economy. And so that is the one thing I'm sure of. And I understand the math that Josh just enumerated and Mike Alfred has, has gone through, but there are, you're, you're, you're taking on another layer of risk as you already mentioned. And so it's like, if I think we're looking at just catastrophic asymmetric upside, why am I not going to just basically do my best to just trace the underlying asset that seems all but assured? What's kind of your thought on that and then how it pertains back to these, these mining stocks? I think that's perfectly fair. Again, you have to consider asset location as well. So do you want to buy, do you want to buy Bitcoin inside of your Roth IRA? So that means you're going to go to a, um, you know, you're going to need to go to a self-directed IRA um, to do that. And you have to consider the fees, um, the possible legislation, who knows what could happen inside of self-directed IRAs. So the rules can always change. As far as being how you can custody it, where you can custody it, if you can buy it, all those things. So you want to consider that. So the reason, again, we own um, these mining companies is primarily because of asset location, um, just needs. Um, if, if you're, it's it's much, if there's a, a much more easy proven path to buy equities inside of a Roth IRA than to go and self custody and buy, and buy uh, Bitcoin directly. So that's that's been a large part of that. Um, what initiated this. And then once we've understood that, then we go through and analyze, okay, what are the trade-offs? If we're going to go the equity route, what type should we look at? Should we look at GBTC or mining or more tertiary exposures like Tesla or MicroStrategy? Um, yeah, again, how are we going to accomplish this? Right. Yeah. Is that a sufficient answer? Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. And I think we're, Josh and I are in alignment in that like 
our a number one priority is to get people to buy bare Bitcoin and cold store it. And I think like we we know somebody that's going the uh, self-directed IRA route with route with Unchained, which is great. The only concern there for somebody to think through is like, so currently we learned that, and I think Unchained's an incredibly good company. I think their services are, are top notch. Currently their Roth IRA offering, from what we understand, you have to put in a minimum of $6,000 in an IRA, in a self-directed IRA with them per year. So that's your Roth maximum. Depending on your income stream and your cash flow, that could be absorbing a lot of your free cash flow. And I think obviously you can touch your principal, but you're locking up a lot of your money till you're 60 years old. And I think it's worth considering like <laughs> this thing could accomplish a lot before the age of 60. And right. for me, my big priority just in my own portfolio for me and my family is keep doing the retirement thing, but find every opportunity and means possible to free up cash flow and free up money to buy bare underlying Bitcoin. Is that something you're talking through with, with clients as well? Oh, certainly. So we, we do talk about, hey, if we want exposure, what means do we get exposure? One, how are you, how comfortable are you with this? Like, again, we're, we're going we're gonna to get them exposed to Bitcoin, like unless you just have for some reason, you're just so anti, then we'll say, all right, we're going to revisit this conversation. I haven't had a converse, I haven't had a client do that yet. Everyone, again, everyone who's investing, we're investing in buying this stuff. So then once we decide that, okay, well, um, again, what's the, what opportunities do we have based off of the types of accounts you're in also future cash flow? You know, if you have, if you have a few Roth IRAs or whatever, um, and you're not able to save currently, like maybe you're like me and I, my family, we don't have an income. We haven't had an income in the entire year. So you're not saving anything. You can't go and buy Bitcoin or anything else. So how are we going to purchase it now versus, Hey, if you have three grand a month in excess cash flow, then do we put that towards, you know, a brokerage account, a retirement account, or are you going and buying Bitcoin directly? So we have that conversation. And part of that conversation is also going to be, um, how comfortable are you with owning this asset? Um, do you want to own it on your own? If so, then we look at the exchanges. Like I point my clients, I used to point them to, towards Swan and now I just point them to, to Strike just because of the simplicity yep. and the fees. So I help them download Strike and then, hey, let's talk about wallets and the different, you know, how you know, the, the, the type of or how involved you want to be with this. So yeah, I'm more than, more than happy to walk people through. I have built a fee structure as well. I, I get asked about this a lot. I've built a fee structure that allows me, I, I wanted to remove any perceived conflict of interest as I could. So I actually allow my clients to choose when they onboard, if they want to pay me just a flat dollar amount, or if they want to pay me a percentage of assets under management. Again, I want to like, I'm here to help you. That's my job. And uh, let's make sure we're doing that. So gosh, I mean, just uh, last week, I had a client, they, uh, they have a lot of money. They said, hey, do we, do we put everything under your management or we just buy Bitcoin directly? And we, they ended up, they put, they maxed out their Roths for the year. But besides that, like they just went and bought Bitcoin directly. And if I, had a, if, if I was after making the most income I could, I would have said, oh, you definitely want that with me. Uh, but my job, I, I, I actually have to do what's best for people. And also I like to do what's best for people. And I think that part of that is going to be owning Bitcoin directly so I can sleep at night knowing that I'm able to do that. So, Jim, um, two different kinds of portfolios I want to ask you about. So number one is the vanilla, your general recommended. And I'm not asking you to tell us every detail, just like a rough estimation of like how you allocate this someone's portfolio when they come to you having no idea what they want to do. And just Jim Kreider's 
general vanilla portfolio for the average person. And then I want you to try to give us an enumeration for someone comes to you and they want to be ultra aggressive. They're young and they can take the risk. How would you approach that one? Okay, let's go here. So the first one, let's just say it's just not me. Okay. So someone normal. Okay. Um, obviously consider your own situation and all the disclosures that I have to make. Um, <laughs> this is not investment advice or whatever. <laughs> yeah, okay. exactly. Um, again, typically, so typical portfolio, um, I think it was Dan mentioned earlier, historically been a really plain vanilla boring investor looking at low cost ETFs and tax efficiencies. That's me as well. Like when I first got into this industry, I actually thought I wanted to be a CFA and run and manage a hedge fund. Then I realized that, um, I've, I don't want to sit behind a wall of monitors my entire life and miss my kid's childhood. So I, and also decided I really like working with people rather than the numbers itself. So I went the CFP route um, and I, gosh, I love it. But uh, anyways, you, we, we look at, all right, asset allocation. So we go through, it's, it's sort of funny because we go through like, all right, we identify goals and needs and time horizons, everything you need to, to establish a proper, proper portfolio. Like if you said, Jim, I need this money in two weeks, um, you're going to invest that or not invest it way differently than Jim, if I, I need this money in 30 years. Everyone knows that. Like an, I, got, I get into this sometime with Bitcoin or should you have an emergency fund in, in US dollars? I believe so. I think it's, it's foolish to not have any US dollars in emergency fund and instead have it all in Bitcoin. I don't think that's smart. We're still holding on to some Dave Ramsey here, Jim. Let's not be crazy. <laughs> yeah. Throw him out. Throw him out. Last week, last week, people got on to me for saying that, yeah, I, I still think you should have emergency fund in cash. People thought I was insane. We'll, we'll get to that in a few minutes about I, my I situation. I agree, by the way. Wholeheartedly. Um, we'll, we'll get into that in a second for my personal situation. But yeah, typical client. So again, once we, we recognize and talk about um, time horizons and risk and everything, if let's say we hash that out and they're relatively... Uh, could, uh, they're good with owning some. We'll look at um, so our, our our core portfolio, the boring stuff, um, is going to be just a handful of really plain vanilla uh, index based ETFs. We're looking at iShares and Vanguard, total U.S. total international stock and bonds, like boring stuff. Yep. So, like typically, someone's like, "Hey, I just let's say I wasn't a Bitcoin person, I would probably have my clients in like." Uh, Vanguard Total US, Vanguard Total International call today, um, which is also sort of weird for financial advisors. Like people think what I do, I sit behind a wall yeah. of monitors and like trade stocks. Like Let's keep nah, it simple. Like, I agree. You're yeah. here to coach behavior and curate good habits and throughout someone's financial life, which just a lot of people under misunderstand how much they're going to get in their own way. Yeah. And identifying opportunities to outperform the market is outrageously difficult. That's why, I mean, there's so many studies that show that buying the index almost always outperforms their, their active cohorts. So, um, and again, especially net of taxes and fees. Um, so that's where the, the, the bulk of the portfolio is going to be in these really boring, uh, index based ETFs. And then we look, so once we've established normal risk tolerance, so if we're looking at like a normal person says like, okay, I want to be hundred percent stocks, no bonds or 90, 10 or 60, 40 or whatever por- percentage there, we establish that and we say, okay, that's the that's a normal way of looking at asset allocation. Now we have to consider this Bitcoin port portion. So then that goes into a second conversation of how much your portfolio do you want this in this hyper volatile. Once we establish that, then we carve off a a uh, a satellite portfolio that I have full discretion over, and I've purposely not called it a Bitcoin portfolio because 
uh, maybe if Bitcoin, it turns out that something happens and it's actually absolutely worthless. Um, hypothetically, I want the dis- the discretion to move that. And if I want to move, move to deep value or whatever, I can. Um, so once we've established a normal asset allocation mix, we look at how much of your portfolio do you want allocated in this discretionary portfolio that, again, is currently in these Bitcoin mining companies. My average client, I would say, is going to be uh, again, depending on when they need it, but if we're talking about a retirement portfolio, they're going to have again between like ten to twenty percent of their total total investable assets inside of the discretionary portfolio, and the remaining inside of the more normal portfolio. A lot of times, my clients are like I said, usually early thirties, so probably going to be one hundred percent of these uh, index based ETFs that are stocks. Probably not going to buy any bonds, or maybe a small amount if they just want to have some. Again, we're not buying bonds because of the income side of things more of smoothing volatility at the moment. I love what you did there. That's that's awesome. The the thing I want to interject here is like we have this classified as the vanilla portfolio. And yeah, on Bitcoin Twitter, the idea of only having 10 or 20% of your net worth sounds like a pittance. But in reality, I'm sure that the world you're living in, there are people that are looking at you like, are you fucking insane? You're <laughs> recommending that your clients put 10 or 20% of their income into Bitcoin exposed equity or whatever? That's that's there's some cojones there, Jim, to be organizing portfolios like that. I'm genuinely, genuinely proud of you, Jim. Yeah, I. <laughs> yes, my 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 colleagues think I'm insane, and I will be audited. Um, you know, we get audited every so often uh, by the state or the SEC, and I know it's going to happen the next year or two. Like it's just inevitable, and I know they're going to have. I'm going to get pushed on there a lot, and I genuinely think like I'm a fiduciary. I have a CFP. I have to try to do what's in my client's best interest, and I am convinced that um, not owning Bitcoin um, is would go against my fiduciary standard. And uh, therefore, like we have to have allocation towards this. And again, I'm comfortable with that position. I could, I would be able to argue that all day. Yeah. Um, again, I have the conviction there, and I make sure I go through the parameters of knowing again, understanding volatility. Like I didn't have a client reach out, so that's that's normal, Jim. We could get like we could really go into details there as far as establishing. All right, you need this for retirement in 30 years versus you need it for um, you need it to buy a house in two years. How do you distinguish between the asset allocation between those? That's a really nuanced conversation and a lot of fun. You have to consider not only the mathematical options, but also the, the trade-offs of life. Um, like you have to consider, I have a client Bitcoin maxi and, and his wife doesn't really care about Bitcoin. The husband was like, Hey man, uh, we're going to buy a house in two years. So we want to put all this money in Bitcoin so we can pay cash for that house whenever we want to move in. I say, that's fantastic. Maybe that'll happen. You go pay cash for your dream house in two years with this Bitcoin you buy. Turn to the wife. Hey, um, what are your thoughts on that? Hey, it'd be be nice to buy Bitcoin or buy buy our dream house in two years with this off this relatively small investment. Okay, that's great. Now let's flip the script. Let's say that the normal normal four-year halving cycle takes place. And in two years, actually Bitcoin is worth about half of what it's worth right now. And instead of buying that house, now suddenly you have to keep renting for a couple more years. Um, Is that okay? Oh, absolutely not. We want to make sure we can have a house so we can keep growing our family. Okay, well then let's let's weigh the opportunities here. Is it worth the the chance of paying cash for your dream house, but then the possibility of you have to keep renting an apartment? Where's the balance? Right. And that's yeah. the fun part. Like my job is partially this huge math puzzle thing that always changes based off of legislation and tax rules and stuff. Then you throw in the whole like human component to it. Okay. Does that cover again? That's yeah. yeah I know you asked sort of a dual question. You asked normal, then you also asked like a YOLO go. Yeah, for let's it go to the yeah, I want to hear that one. Absolutely. Okay, so I'll be I'll be the hyper aggressive so I can actually just give my position. Um again, this is just me. So um 
Kendra and I, March of 20, had a bunch of money in Roth IRAs. It was 100000 So I'll give you our numbers. We had $100,000 inside of old 401k plans. I didn't do this on purpose. It just sort of happened to happen. Um, like during the COVID correction, a lot of our money was actually in motion, rolling over from old 401ks to IRAs. So we actually missed that down period accidentally. Like I didn't, I wasn't trying to time the market. I'm not a genius. Right. I just happened to move money then. Anyway, so March of 2020, had about $100,000 um, inside of these retirement accounts and also some cash. And we just, I talked to Kendra and said, Hey, I, I believe based off of what I understand about Bitcoin, I think this is smart. Like, I think we should go ahead and just put hundred percent in that. So at that point we put hundred percent of our investments in Bitcoin and these Bitcoin related companies. Um, that hundred thousand is now probably worth, I don't know, just over a million or so. Um, <laughs> and so awesome. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I love the way uh, it's so, yeah. <laughs> That, that that's it's, basically you shared that to the guy's show you were on. You're like, yeah, so and he's like, <laughs> okay, um, so tell me about your family. <laughs> like, it doesn't even register. That's incredible. I, that is yeah. incredible. Now, here's how here's how that discussion went and how the logic here. And I've had a couple, I have a couple clients who are doing this similar strategies. Here's the thought. I was 30 at the time, I'm 31 now. We had $100,000 of investment assets. I knew I was going to probably going to start a business this year. So I started a business in January of this year, 2021. And Kendra and I decided that when we did that, I wouldn't be taking an income for at least 12 to 18 months. And if I'm not taking income, our, our house doesn't have an income because Kendra stays at home with our three kids. Okay. So um, we decided though, okay, by the time the type of work I'm in, we make pretty good money. So I figured by the time I'm 35, I should be making, let's call it, 400,000. I'll send Uncle Sam about 25%. So 100,000. We'll live off about 100,000. I could be saving about $200,000 per year. If I do that, $200,000 per year saved for a decade, I want, I want work optionality by the time I'm 45, which is very typical of my clients work on optionality in their mid to late 40s. Um, by the time I'm 45, $200,000 saved per year for 10 years. Um, if we look at just like a relatively normal growth, by the time I'm 45, that $200,000 per year should be about 3 million. Okay, that's not even considering that hundred thousand dollars I had then. So I decided that okay, if if we assume those things at forty five, I'll still be able to retire early if I want based off this normal portfolio. So we're comfortable with this risk. And if we zoom out, yes, a hundred thousand dollars at thirty was a hundred percent of our portfolio. But if I zoom out and look at a hundred thousand dollars at my forty five year age, that's actually about three percent of the portfolio. Hundred thousand dollars of three million is about three percent. So I said, all right, really, if I zoom out, I'm investing about three percent of my future portfolio at this time that I believe is asymmetric. We felt comfortable with that. Again, we have a high risk tolerance. Um, it moves a lot. But again, I, I did that in context of our, of our plan and our own situation. Bravo. So, I, love, I love the way you work through that. And it's just a great, it's a great example of like, there's no shortcuts with this future planning stuff. You either need to have the chops and wherewithal to do this yourself, or you need to hire someone to do it for you. Because... Like think it's, it's, it's not rocket science, but it does take some, some foresight and some math to figure it out. And one thing I latch onto based on what you just explained is like, you have to consider your own career aspirations, trajectory, and future cash flow. In your situation, you sized up the next 10, 20 years for your family. And you realize that taking that balls to the wall, quote unquote position wasn't actually that risky in the, in the whole scheme of your life. But I guess a, a cautionary tale this is maybe one of the few times I'm cautioning people to maybe be a little bit careful with their position size is like, if you're a fireman in West Virginia 
and you have this huge nest egg that you've worked 16 years to to curate, you're not going to have the same cash flow as potentially Jim Kreider is going to have. And so I'm not saying you shouldn't take a Bitcoin position, but you have to think through playing all sides of this equation, what the risk scenarios are and realize yeah. like in your situation, this shit could have imploded and you and your family would have been okay because of the trajectory you're on. Every person has to assess their own situation. And it's understanding your own tolerance for risk and volatility too. Like if you don't think you can hodl when this thing drops 50% like it did in June, I mean, that is a very sour thing to taste if you haven't done it. And if you're mm -hmm. listening to this and you haven't watched your portfolio get cut completely in half in a month, it's very different when you're doing it than it is to talk about it six months later. I can tell you that. Yeah. There's going back to like normal mutual funds, there's been a lot of studies that compare investment return versus investor return. And typically speaking, the investment, so this pool of mutual funds outperform the investors who own the mutual funds. And the reason is because, you know, people identify a mutual fund that's been hot performing, they go ahead and buy in that mutual fund that's done well suddenly drops in value, they freak out and sell, then it goes back up. So people, like typically, again, the investors underperform the investment by a few percent. And uh, that's just volatility of a, of a normal stock bond portfolio, not considering you know the, the massive uh, volatility of, of Bitcoin. So yeah, you definitely want to consider your own risk tolerance, your ability to stomach these, these ups and downs. Yes. And also, again, zoom out and look at your like the, the implications on your current and future lifestyle yeah. um, that, that has to account. And I would assume your listeners, one massive consideration they want to take again is uh, their future fixed income sources. So if we're talking about pension income later on, um, how much of your, uh, how much of, how much of your future lifestyle will be able to be supported through fixed income means? And where's the gap and how comfortable are you with just bridging that gap versus potentially not only bridging that gap, but upping it or also possibly, again, we have to recognize the, 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 the risk involved, um, possibly not quite actually bridging that gap fully if Bitcoin goes to nothing. So then we have to weigh these, right. these, uh, these considerations. So Dan and I have had the conversation before, and I think we're both on the same page with this idea and understanding. We kind of view the pension that we are entitled to in 20 years or so as a fixed income portion of our portfolio and therefore feel yeah. the ability to be a bit more aggressive with the rest of what we do. So, yeah. I mean, that's just the way we kind of look at and size this animal up. But we've um, been looking at that way for years, too. If you're a fireman who owns bonds in your personal portfolio, like you're out of your fucking mind, let it run, especially where we are in, in terms of where credit is in the world. Even when we would talk about equity years ago, Josh, you'd be like, you're crazy to own fixed income. You have this kind of get out of jail free card, this sort right. of this safety net beneath you in a pension, like let it go, especially if you're 30 years old. And then obviously this wonderful slippery hog that is Bitcoin walked in the pen. And now we're just like saddle this thing, man. <laughs> so what happens when somebody comes to you? I want to get back to the cold storage question because I could see the scenario where dude walks in your office, you hand him the orange pill. A couple weeks later, he's taking it. He sees it. He's listening to Matt O'Dell and he's like, dude, I'm going all in and it's going to be primarily in cold stored Bitcoin on my treasure, my cold card. Like, I'm guessing you have had or expect to have situations where you're kind of potentially saying like hasta la vista. How does the cold storage of this individual sovereignty and cold storage fit into you being their money manager or coach? Yeah. Again, I have to, I actually have to try to do what's in your best interest. And I also want to, I, I, I 
absolutely love and cherish every you know family I get to work with. So I, I want to do what's in your best interest. And I think that owning Bitcoin um, directly is part of that. So yeah, even if it, maybe someone's paying me assets under management and you know they're, they're paying me to hold money inside of a, a taxable account, they come to me and say, hey, Jim, I've decided I want to go ahead and buy the Bitcoin directly so I can put it in cold storage. And again, if we agree that's actually what's best for the situation, like, yes, do that. Um, so that's where there's, again, there's on the conflict of interest side of things, there's a lot of asset managers out there or financial planners rather who tell people, I, I personally think that you know having debt, you know, healthy interest on a debt is fine. But there's a lot of financial planners out there who will tell clients, "Oh, never pay off a house or never pay off this debt." And the reason there is not because the the math and the opportunity cost, but they know that hey, if this person wants to pay off their house, that's going to be three hundred thousand dollars less than I'm managing. Therefore, that's you know yeah. three grand less of income for me. So. Um, yeah, I, again, I tried to I tried to remove that, and yeah, I'm more than happy. Like I have helped clients like regularly. How do we buy this stuff? What wallet do we use? Let's move it over. Like I'm here to do <laughs> the the right thing. So one thing before we let you go that I really want to hear your opinion on, and I I think I know what it's going to be, but I want to hear you tell our audience. Everybody thinks they can trade. Everybody thinks they're going to be the guy who you know buys the bottom, sells the top. What's your advice for any of your clients or anyone in general that thinks that they're going to try to trade this market to try to multiply their returns here as a factor of two or three versus just sitting on this stuff, huddling it and letting this play itself out over the next 10 years? First off, it goes back to the boring vanilla portfolio. Um, again, that's that's the that's obviously the majority of the, the portfolio um, because I think it's very, very difficult some would argue impossible to outperform the market over a prolonged period of time. And if you do think you can do that, it's probably going to be rare, especially someone like me. I'm not, I'm not very smart, so I'm not going to think that I can identify opportunities all the time. Um, so that's why we, um, you know, I, I'm not buying these individual, individual positions very often. Um, just when I, th I think there is a possibility to, to outperform, then we'll go purchase it. Um, and then I'm not going to be trading these on a regular basis. Like, um, we're very rarely will add a new position or take a position out because again, thinking you can find a position that will outperform is really difficult. And then th thinking you can do that on a daily, weekly, or monthly basis, you're out of your mind. Yeah. Um, there's, there's people out there who are way smarter than me who failed this all the time. Um, who am I to think that I can go to this all the time and, right. and beat them? Dan and I joke around about this being like sheep and wolves in this market. And there's some wolves out there that are the 1% outliers who are going to eat you alive if you try to trade this stuff. Yeah, this is true of markets broadly. Like we giggle at dudes at the firehouse on E-Trade. Robin Hood. You think you're going to, like Wall Street can't even hold up against the S&P 500. You think you're going to do it with zero education and a few extra minutes at the firehouse kitchen table? Like, Good luck. It's crazy. And I keep plugging you, but this is where like, if you're going to get in your own way, you, you need a professional. Because like this is all behavioral and so many people end up shooting themselves in the foot and not even realizing what they lost out on because they were juggling the whole time for 20 years. There Now, there is this other side of things. So I, I want to make sure I'm candid here, and I'm sure I'll take a lot of flack from Bitcoiners about this part. But starting in a few months, um, I do plan on that, that discretionary portfolio uh, that's currently in these three mining stocks, I do intend on uh, reverse dollar cost average or dollar cost averaging out um, in small tranches over a period of, over a few month period until we've DCA'd out about half of that holding. 
So for me personally, 100% of our investment portfolio is in these Bitcoin companies. I will plan on I plan on DCAing out to where half of my portfolio is, um, starting at the end of the year and finishing that probably by mid spring. Um, I, at this point, I think we're going to move those positions for for us and clients um, that we're DCAing out of. We'll probably move those into some deep value, um, and then we'll hold that for probably about a year and a half. And then we'll go back in and go back into these companies again or whatever companies I, I believe is going to be smart. The reason the reason I'm doing that is, um, uh, again, because we're, we're looking at time horizon and risk opportunity or opportunity costs with other things. So if we think it, we're, we're selling half, I'm not getting all the way out. Um, the reason I, and again, this could change, um, but here's what I'm, I'm noodling on right now is probably getting out about half over a prolonged period of time. Um, again, DCAing out probably in 10% tranches, doing five of those over a few months. Um, I'm keeping half because if this thing keeps running, you know, even someone having, if they have 20% and then we go down to 10, 10% allocation is still very healthy. Or if you're at hundred percent like me and going down to 50 is very nuts still. Um, so we can, we can take advantage of the possibility of it growing, but if we also follow the normal four year cycle, then we're stepping out on the sidelines for a bit and then we'll be able to re-enter at a, a lower point and then get back in. Again, that goes that does go a lot against the active versus passive management. I am usually very passive, but I have to consider I'm also managing money for people who aren't just going to use this in uh, 30 years, but also families who are going to use this to buy something in the next two years. Right. And I we have to mitigate the ups and downs with that uh, near term as well. Are you when you um, say that? Are you talking about um, ever? Obviously, you're talking about people under management, but you're also talking about your own personal portfolio. Yes, I am. Yeah, and also, so that that is something I talk about with clients. It's like, hey, Jim, I want to buy Bitcoin or these companies. Um, how do we do this? We also go into my management, and um, I talk about this again. I don't call it a Bitcoin portfolio. I call it a discretionary por- portfolio. That we have discretion to move it however I see fit. And hey, if you're going to buy this Bitcoin directly and put into cold storage, I will talk to you. I, I regularly talk about the investment side of things for my clients. And hey, like here's what we're doing for your this type of portfolio. Um, but typically like for us, my pers- me personally, and then my clients are taking Bitcoin and putting it in cold storage. We are doing so not with the, that is not going to be like, you know, in a few months, we're going to, we're going to, we're not going to go out and start DCAing out of that. Like that is long-term. Um, we'll consider that as, you know, sort of part of that. Like that's, that's long-term. We're not trying to scale out. It's these, mostly these, these mining companies that we're going to do this scale out. And those are also inside, um, Retirement funds, therefore, we'll pay no taxes on the gains there. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of this is going to be, yeah, instead of IRAs, okay. Roth IRAs. Because I think that's an important part to make sure people understand is like if you yes. decide, okay, hey, yes. I'm going to sell 50% of my Bitcoin at where I think maybe might be the top, you're going to pay some massive capital gains there. And good luck if you think you're going to try to scoop this back up cheaper because maybe we don't have an 80% drawdown this time. Maybe we have a like 40% drawdown. And at that point, you're just not even. So, you know, or or somewhere in that thereabouts. You gotta consider these tax implications. And yeah, and I think like there's a lot of people in the Bitcoin community that have a growing understanding of the history of money, macro econ. They have some, you know, they've they've studied some of the Austrian school and whatever, and they're really excited, but they don't understand the inner workings of financial markets in 2021. And so I think that's a caution we want to keep doling out. It's like some of these tax bills, man, especially if you've made some significant gains, like you got to be ready to eat these and consider whether it makes sense to do that. You're a professional. You've thought this through. And your clientele is just, once again, it's not Bitcoin Twitter. Like I yeah. think a lot of our audience has to remember 
we're at just tiny adoption right now. So many people are coming in without the level of conviction and understanding. You're managing their money and you have to, I don't know if acquiesce is the right word, but consider these this different angle than some of our audience may be coming from. But that's necessary. You may be too cool for it, but like your aunt's probably in that position. Your dad might be in that position. Your brother's probably in that position. People are not aware of what this is yet. And you got you to gotta meet them where they're at. Yeah, there's a lot of folks that are going to end up in a worse position because they've taken too big of an allocation. This is something Josh and I talk about, is that if you go too big too early, you blow your load too fast, you're not going to be able to hold on because you've gone too big and you, you're, you're freaked out with that 80% drawdown and you end up with less than if you just kind of gradually increased your position size in tandem with your understanding and conviction of the asset class. Man, you just brought up a lot of stuff. So I want to go back and touch on my personal situation and it touches on the uh, emergency fund sort of thing. So again, I took a lot of flack last week for saying that uh, I think people should have a you know US dollar fiat emergency fund. Um, but again, uh, emergency fund is not an investment. It's, it is insurance against the unknowns. And it's an opportunity to, to make another decision. So for for Kendra and I, for instance, whenever I, in January, stepped out of my old job to start my own firm, um, again, we knew that we weren't going to have an income. We've got the, the two of us plus three kids. Life is expensive. How are we going to float this but not have to tap into our investments? Well, we were able to do that because well, we I eat my own cooking. So we had a healthy emergency fund, I, I guess probably about 40 grand, spent that down to about 10, and then uh, lived off that for a bit. And then we also, before I left my old job, I established a HELOC, a home equity line of credit. So we're actually living on uh, equity from inside of our house right now. Um, and because of those other things, I haven't had to spend any of my Bitcoin. If I didn't have an emergency fund or, you know, already took to, if I and already took a uh, cash out refi and put all of that into Bitcoin, well, then earlier this summer when Bitcoin went from 60,000 to 29,000 and I had to live off that money, I literally had to just pull out um, at a, you know, bad time and that sequence of return risks. So you have to consider the the trade-offs, the needs, the time horizons, all these things. I think it's absurd to say that, oh, I'm going to go all in Bitcoin. I'm not going to have any emergency fund when again, uh, that this is all about opportunities. Money's just a thing to help you do what's important to you. Yeah. Forget Bitcoin or stocks or rental houses. Um, it's about your life. It's about what the money's here for. It's not about the money itself. So consider that. A fiat emergency fund is in place for me to protect my Bitcoin. Like, honestly, that's the way I would put it. And it's not yeah. huge. Like, I'm not sitting on tons of fiat, but I'm sitting on enough where a, an uh, unexpected, expensive event could happen in my life and I'm not going to my cold stored Bitcoin because that would yeah. literally cut my heart out. I think it's important to also note on that because I am somebody who doesn't have a large emergency fund, but my cash flow keeps yes. me comfortable. So if you, if you have a substantial or even a decent cash flow... Maybe I'll hold off on DCAing into Bitcoin this month because an expense popped up that I didn't expect. Or in the short term, and this may be something, Jim, you totally disagree with, I've got credit cards with some high rates. If I had to, I would put it on a credit card and I'd pay it off quick. But your cash flow is good. And there's a difference for our audience between Josh and I. Josh has another side business that does decent. I don't. Like I, I'm just a firefighter paramedic. My wife works only a little bit. My cash flow is not as high. I probably need more of an emergency fund than Josh. You got to consider your own individual situation. All of these things are all personal, which is exactly why you should see someone like Jim, because he can guide you through all of these mechanisms 
you know, without having to rack your brain and kill yourself over all this stuff. I feel like you had something else to say. Keep going, Jim, from before. No, well, as far as the emergency fund, and yeah, you have to consider your, your own situation. You know, uh, Bitcoin aside, just normal people, the typical rule of thumb is three to six months of living expenses set aside in, in an emergency fund. And a lot of people are like, all right, I know that rule of thumb. That's probably the most known rule of thumb out there for personal finance. Um, but where do you fall in three to six months? Well, that comes in like, you know, typically three months if you're a dual income household and you have, y'all work at different jobs and they're both steady incomes, three months is probably sufficient. If you're a single inf- income household and your job is largely commission based, then probably should err on the side of caution, have three, have six months of living expenses. Um, you know, so again, yeah, y'all, y'all. Uh, said that perfectly as far as expected income and diversification of income sources that is that plays a large role in how large of an emergency fund you need um again it's just a it's a way of it's it's a way of uh mitigating risks and you have to weigh the risk there the risk of being fired by two jobs or you know losing your business and being fired uh versus you know a lot of my a lot of my clients are in the military so you know you're employed by the you know, probably the it's going to be really hard to lose your job in the military. So you could probably afford to have a smaller uh, emergency fund in that situation compared to someone who's like, I don't know, selling cars being full commission. Like you just need that cushion. So, right. Yeah. I got one more thing I want to cover before we let you go. Things keep popping into my head here. This has been an awesome conversation, by the way. I think very applicable for a, for a big segment of our audience. Um, One thing I think we want to be careful of and we want to distinguish on this show is the difference between good debt and bad debt. So you talking about this home equity line of credit uh, got me thinking about this. There is like this sort of idea permeating in the Bitcoin community, which makes total sense, mathematical sense. This is maybe a, a we'll call it a Pishian uh, theme, which is like, why wouldn't you borrow fiat at low interest rate and buy the most parabolic asset known to man sort of thing? Like the idea of of, of doing the math and taking on good debt. The problem is a lot of people just hear, oh, debt is cheap and good. And so you, you get the less informed just thinking, oh yeah, taking out loans is fine and they're buying more crap and consumption's rising. And we live in a society that's just so over leveraged. I mean, especially our demographic. I mean, the number of people we're around that just are levered to their eyeballs and own all this crap and have no free cash flow and aren't accumulating assets is crazy. So really, good debt is debt that you can manage, first of all, given all future scenarios, and that frees up your cash flow to buy productive assets. Can you just speak to that briefly for our audience and and how you label good debt and bad debt at this day and time? You want to look at a handful of things. One, the impact of that debt payment against your monthly cash flow. That's important to consider. Obviously, interest rates in the terms. Um, is it a fixed? Is it a variable loan? Um, is this going to be? I mean, obviously, there's a lot more risk of taking debt on something that's marked to market where you can get called on that debt versus just a, a mortgage. You know, thirty year fixed, you know, mortgage. Like that's not going to be marked to market. You just hang hang in there and know that you're going to have this fixed payment for a long time. So that's where. Again, there's a big difference between having a credit card at twenty seven percent versus having a mortgage at three percent. Um, so yeah, there's there's so many factors there, but I think we all that's that's a very Ill, easy illustration. Credit card at twenty seven, mortgage at three. I think we can all agree that one's you know safer than another. The tough part comes in when you're talking about like student loans or something like that at like six percent. What do you do about that? Yeah, oh, and those are terrible. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're not looking just at uh, 
a mass uh, math problem, but also a personal situation. Like I have a client, they make fantastic money, like upwards towards about a million dollars a year, but they live like they made fifty grand a year, and they hate debt. They said, "Hey, when we first started working together, they were huge Dave Ramsey people." And they said, "Hey, Jim, we, I know mathematically it makes sense to keep this and let you know just invest more and all that stuff, but we just we're not comfortable with having a mortgage. We just want to pay this off and be done with it." Hey, you know what? Like. Y'all are going to be just fine either way. If that's going to help you sleep at night, like, yeah, do that. Like, it's it, it just makes sense. Your money is here to help, help do what's important, and sleep is important to you. So let's 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 do that. Make that decision. So, yeah, you have to look at the math side of things, the the factors that play in there, but also, again, uh, what's what's best for you and your family. Yeah, yep. great advice. The mortgage thing is tough right now. I do wholeheartedly believe there's a time and a place for Dave Ramsey. If you're, you know, like we said, just massively over leveraged, you've never had free cash flow in your whole life. You, you get a credit card every time you go into a new department store. Like the guy's good for you, but his, his methodology, at least with mortgages, it made a lot of sense in 1985. It made decent amount of sense in 1995. Maybe it was still tolerable in 2010, but in, in the year 2021, kind of with where we're at with where we see CPI and inflation and and just rampant monetary policy going, I think for the average wage earner with a typical cash flow, in my humble opinion, you're insane to pay off your house right away. I think you're, I think Josh, you agree. I think there's some, I completely agree. I think you're not doing proper math and I understand why Dave came up with that. And I understand for habit building purposes and whatever, but I have really flipped my narrative on this. I'm like, so long as you can learn to be self-disciplined and keep that money free, I would be um, I would be boarding the rocket ship instead of tying yourself to the rock that's headed to the headed to the bottom of the pond. Yeah, if if you if you had a mortgage that's at fifteen percent and inflation's at three, well, there's a twelve percent gap there. But now, if we're CPI, and obviously we, I think we all have thoughts on CPI, but CPI being a conservative measure of inflation at five and a half percent, and if you're sitting on a mortgage at three percent. Then by hanging on to that mortgage, you're that's a two and a half percent arbitrage, uh, and letting inflation, you know, pay off your pay off your mortgage with cheaper money over time. And again, you have to also consider a mortgage is um, you have to look at compound interest versus fixed interest and the opportunity cost there. Um, so yeah, there's certainly things to consider when you when you look at that. And I, I agree. Um, I, I even with clients have high conviction they want to pay off debt, we definitely talk through the the mass side of things and make sure they're not making a, a decision based off solely based off emotion, but also the factors and the, the math has to weigh in there. Um, yeah, I agree. Um, you know, having a three percent, heck, even us, like we have a mortgage and we also took out a line of credit. The line of credit is a floating rate, so I set it up. It was at three and a quarter. Now it's at three point seven five, but I've taken out sixty grand from that, so that's sixty grand less. Actually, more than that because of taxes. If I withdrew my investments, so let's say. 75,000 that I was able to keep invested that $75,000 over this year has grown by what a hundred percent, let's say. So I pay 3.75%, but I keep my money invested at a hundred percent rate of return. So I just achieved a 96.25%, uh, alpha against that. So you know, yeah, I think it's not bad. It's not bad at all. You know, we're going to wrap this up here, Jim, be respectful of your time. Can I bring up one thing? Yes. Yes. Okay. We talked about taxes a lot. I'm not a CPA or a tax advisor, but here's something that I want Bitcoiners to chew on. Um, you know, a lot of these people are, it's a generous bunch and we all talk about being tax efficient or whatever. At least I do. Maybe, maybe, I, maybe everyone doesn't. I just do. Um, 
yes, there's a place. It looks like the tax loss harvesting, uh, which historically has not played a role in uh, crypto or Bitcoin, it looks like that will be introduced. Uh, so you have to consider that with loss harvesting. But also, if you're maybe in a lower income situation and you could do a capital gain gain harvest, not a loss, but actually gain harvest this year, that might make sense. You harvest your gains, you get a stepped up cost basis, you get back in your position. Um, that might make sense. So there's that's, there's a couple tax things you want, maybe want to consider. Um, further, um, obviously, asset location, the types of accounts you're using. Also, as I touched on a second ago, a lot of these people tend to be generous. We hear about you know people giving to maybe like Bitcoin Beach or you know those sorts of things, Bitcoin Lake or I don't know. Kinder and I, we like to give to a handful of causes. And if you're if you were going to give, let's say you want to give ten grand, you make a hundred thousand dollars, and you tithe or give ten percent of your of your income. Um, let's say you were going to take ten percent of your income and give it away in U.S. dollars, um, or you have. I don't know, 10 grand of gains in Bitcoin, you could actually um, set up what's called a donor advice fund or a DAF, and you give appreciated assets to that donor advice fund, um, and then have that fund give it to the qualified charity. And then that $10,000 that you were going to give directly out to cash, you put that, you, or okay, you sell 10 grand of your position, you buy in with that cash flow or that cash. You reestablish your cost basis at a higher at a higher cost basis, and you didn't realize a gain because again, you you gave away that position. You didn't cash it out and then give it away. That's all people mess up. Like, hey, I've got I've made you know doll, X dollars in my investments. I want to give some to the charity I love, so I'm going to cash out ten thousand dollars. Well, let's say you're paying capital gains at fifteen percent. Now you're giving away eighty five hundred dollars. Instead, you could again set up a donor advice fund. Give the donor advice fund actually ten thousand dollars of your position. You gave the ten there, and if you you know if you had ten thousand dollars aside, you come and you put that back in. You reestablish your cost basis at a higher point, which will mitigate or reduce your taxes later on. Or let's say Bitcoin goes down in the future, and you know indefinitely, then you have a higher cost basis to uh, for for tracking loss purposes. So just some thoughts, yeah. consideration, a lot of this stuff. Again, people think like uh, financial advisors are useless, but that's just a very 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 small portion of like. Have you considered that? Yeah, absolutely. And that's something I didn't know. So thank you. Yeah, likewise. Um, we'll plug you at the, the start of this too, but uh, give us a handoff to you, your company, your work, how people can get in touch with you. Yeah, so uh, my firm, it's Intentional Living FP um, for financial planning. So Intentional Living FP, again, we work specifically with, with families who desire early financial independence. Um, so that's, that's what we do. We basically live where your life and your money meet. Um, helping you make smart decisions so you can do what's important to you today and also later on. Um, if you want to talk, you can follow me on Twitter. It's Jim Kreider TX is in Texas. So Jim Kreider TX and you can go to our website. It's intentionallivingfp.com. Um, on there, my calendar, if you have, if you have a, just a question, Hey, what's my 457 or a Roth IRA? I don't understand these things. Put 15 minutes on there. I'm more than happy to answer a question for you. Or if you want to talk about like, you know, financial planning or Bitcoin, or whatever, throw it on there and love to chat. Awesome. Thank you. Appreciate your time. Hoddle on, brother. Appreciate it, guys. Thanks for listening into the show. If you enjoyed this discussion, be sure to subscribe on whatever app you're using for podcasts. And if you have an extra minute, go ahead and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter. We're at blue underscore collar BTC. We invite questions, comments, and inquiries of any kind, and our email is bluecollarbitcoinpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to you joining us next time on the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast.